Hi, everybody. This is Arthi from Human Chapters. A very happy 2023 to everybody that's um, going to be listening in on this conversation. I'll tell you a little bit about Human Chapters. Humans are living narratives with the past, present and future. These narratives constitute of a number of chapters across a lifespan. The aim of these conversations is to highlight a chapter of the narrative and unpack its connections to other chapters. I don't care whether people are natural storytellers, but I truly do believe each one of us has a worthy story to share. Acknowledgement to country. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands on which we are. We pay respect to their tribal elders, past and present and emerging. We celebrate the continuing culture and we acknowledge the memory of their ancestors. Today, we're going to be talking to Jen. Jen comes to us from Pennsylvania and Jen's chapter is Embrace the Science of Reading Journey. Welcome, Jen. Tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am truly honored uh, that you reached out to me and would like to hear my story. It's always humbling that other people are interested in, you know, what seems like just my everyday things that I do. I have been a kindergarten teacher for 17 years, and it has been uh, the only position that I've had in kindergarten. If you would have asked me when I graduated, if I was going to be a kindergarten teacher, I would have said no, but I really have found my place in kindergarten, and it's always full of joy and magic, and uh, there's always excitement. And it is a great place to learn and grow, even for grownups. Oh, that sounds so wonderful. And do you find your energy levels are usually high or meeting the children where they're at? It sometimes feels like a roller coaster, yeah. uh, especially coming back from the holiday break. It sometimes is hard to match the energy levels, but... Uh, in certain things, uh, you can't ever see a child's first reading experience mm -hmm. or uh, you've worked so hard with them, particularly right now we're coming into, uh, in Pennsylvania, we do the um, fall and spring semester. Our school does nine weeks, so it's four quarters. So we're coming up on the middle of our school year. So we're starting to look at how much kids have learned in our first half of the year. And just watching as I do one-on-one -on -one screenings with the kids, how much they've learned from my hard work into planning and trainings and putting into place all of the different curriculum pieces that my district has acquired for us. Uh, it's it's overwhelming with joy. Uh, kids who have come so far from the first day, I, I wish I could bottle it up and send it home to each child's parent because that's part of the joy of being a kindergarten teacher is that every year I get to experience that with another group of kids. And I know that as parents, you, you always want to be able to see those first with kids and they, they don't always get to, but every year I get to, and that's one of the best things about being a kindergarten teacher. Oh, that's, that sounds amazing, Jen. Um, so for, um, anyone in the world that's possibly going to listen to this conversation, um, when you say kindergarten, what age group are you actually referring to? Oh, that's a great question. A lot of different places have different definitions of, of how kindergarten works. So in my state, kindergarten would be ages five and six. And every once in a while, um, a seven-year-old will be in a kindergarten class. And each state decides whether kindergarten is mandatory or not. And in my state, kindergarten is not currently mandatory by the state legislature or in our school code. Uh, some of the other states do have that. And we also have full day kindergarten and you can also have half day as well. Uh, that also goes district by district. It depends on a lot of different um, 
funding and space. And there's a lot of thought and things that go into that. But I did start my career in half-day kindergarten. I usually say that I've taught just about every kind of kindergarten now. Mm -hmm. I did half-day for six years. So we would have a morning group and then they would go home and an afternoon group of different students would come in. And I also was fortunate enough to be in a district that would bus the kids midday instead of having uh, parent pickups because I did some student teaching where parents would pick up in the middle of the day. And then we went to full day. And then when the pandemic came, we did um, hybrid where half the kids were home doing asynchronous work and some were at school. And we also did virtual where everybody was home. Mm -hmm. And then we also did live stream where everybody was Anybody that was not at school was streaming while I was teaching kids in the classroom. Then I was also teaching sort of like we are right now, uh, but not showing the kids in my classroom. They they would be at their desks and then I would be teaching um, with a stream from my smart board, uh, whatever lesson we were on. Uh, we were lucky enough to use some of our funding to become a one-to-one -one district. And then we also were masked for some of that and unmasked as well. And now we're back to full in-person with no masks. So we've come full circle. Amazing. Oh, what a, what a time to think about. And like that time has been, what, three years. It seems like a lifetime and doesn't as well. Yes. Um, so Jen, tell us about your chapter name is Embrace the Science of Reading Journey. Tell us a little bit about it and the conception of the journey you experiences within I suppose the 17 years um, and yeah any defining moments you've had when I started as a, as a young child actually I knew that I wanted to be a teacher my mom was a teacher and I used to teach our neighborhood kids with an old teacher manual that we had in our basement and it was probably a fifth grade manual and none of the kids were in fifth grade, but it didn't matter. And they would all sit at little places and I would teach them lessons and we would go through all the motions. And I did, you know, encourage my sister to be a little bit above grade level when it came to some of the things she was learning. So I had always enjoyed working with kids and teaching kids how to do things. And I went on through high school. Um, I had some experiences as well, which many teachers will tell you, you know, we had experiences that shaped us and made us want to go into the classroom and make sure um, certain experiences didn't happen to other kids. And, and I also had some as a younger student as well. Um, and then I went on to college and I went to a smaller college and for me, the experience ended up being something that was what I made out of it. And I did have one really great professor there that uh, really encouraged me to be the best teacher that I could be. And then I went into student teaching and was lucky enough to have two of the best cooperating teachers that really taught me how to be a teacher uh, on my own as opposed to, uh, I don't feel like my schooling gave me a lot of information that I could use. Uh, writing scripted lesson plans isn't really what I needed in the classroom. And then I graduated and started teaching. And a lot of what you learn in university is not what you need to be successful in the classroom. Uh, it's not lining up. And at this point, we're learning that a lot of our post high school schooling isn't teaching us how to be reading teachers or how to be effective math teachers either. And, you know, I came out of school and I am a rule follower and I'm going to follow what, you know, I'm expected to do, what I'm asked to do and whatever I was taught to do in, in college. So that's what I did. And a few years in, to my career, uh, my school was lucky enough. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm in the state of Pennsylvania, which is home of Patton. And um, 
many listening that would be educators are probably familiar with Patton. The program is a phenomenal program that offers trainings and they encourage people from all over the world to attend them. And most of the trainings are free and it doesn't matter if you live in my state or not. And the state offered a dyslexia pilot and school districts could apply to be part of this program. And my district was selected as one of the districts to be part of it. So some of our teachers got training and we started implementing different programs. And I didn't go in the initial group, but teachers in my district did. And then they brought information back and we started changing some of the things that we were doing. And we started with Hegarty phonemic awareness and we started seeing changes in our students and in our reading. And at that point, I started to realize that maybe there was more to the story. And that's sort of where my journey of transformation began. And a couple of my close friends and colleagues were like, you know, you might be interested in some of this other stuff. There's some Facebook groups. There's some other people that you might be interested in learning from. So I joined some of the Facebook groups, like the science of reading, what I should have learned in college, which is so perfectly named. And I started reading things and watching, you know, short YouTube videos and doing a couple of free trainings here and there. And I joined our English language arts committee. We were up for adopting something new. Mm -hmm. And I was so fortunate that my boss, my principal, uh, she was attending a lot of the additional trainings and knew a lot about things that we were missing with phonemic awareness and phonics. And she was sharing that information with us. And we brought a lot of pieces in that we needed. So I started doing trainings and learning things. And I watched uh, the purple video. It's on YouTube. And it's about um, a reader that's an emergent reader. And I watched it and the student was reading with their parent at home during shutdown. And it was like, they're, it's almost like they're not reading at all. And I watched it and I was like, oh my goodness, that this is, this is how we've been teaching reading in classrooms for years. And it was my aha moment. And at that point I decided that I needed to change. And it's really hard not to blame yourself and you have to forgive yourself for things that you did not knowing better because you can't, you can't do things that you didn't know. And when you know better, you have to just do better. So that's kind of how I got from there to here. And the pandemic was such an interesting experience with all the different teaching styles that we did. So we had different opportunities where we would have office hours and we would have time to meet with parents. And uh, I got to understand the journey of my students in a different way. And I also took any extra time that I had, I could go to trainings during the day and I would have time on uh, our Wednesdays where I could attend trainings live and learn from some of the top experts that understand the research so much better than I do. So that's where I started to build kind of all of the knowledge that I have at this point. Uh, I, at one point I was questioning whether I was collecting too many certificates because I just couldn't stop learning. There was so much to learn. Absolutely. Thank you so much for articulating that part of your journey. Um, so clearly, Jen. And one thing I would love to do, I will put a link to the purple video um, with the notes of this conversation. But for anyone that doesn't have a chance to watch it, is there, can you give us a brief description of what actually happens to the child reading in this particular video? So in the video, they're using an app and it's from Raz Kids, and they have all kinds of books that students can read, and sometimes the books read to them, but the child's flipping through, and the sentences are repetitive, so 
it'll say the same beginning couple of words and then a word that cannot be sounded out. They mm -hmm. look up at the picture mm -hmm. and the word was purple. Like I see the purple fish. I see the purple gate and the habit that students develop that is that of a poor reader is to pick up the pattern of the words in the sentence and not look at the text on the page. And when you get to the word at the end of the sentence, they look at the picture. The problem is when you get to third grade or end of second grade, the picture's not there anymore. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the phonic skills are not enough that you've learned or they're sporadic and they're not going to be there to, or not solid enough for that student, for them to be able to apply them and actually read the story. And at that point, the student is struggling because we, we taught them skills to be a struggling reader. And for 40%, uh, based on, you know, Nancy Young's ladder, 40% of kids, you know, they might be okay. That in spite of whatever strategies we've taught them, they might be okay. But for the other 60%, they need us to guide them in a better direction. And it's not going to hurt the other 40% to give them better guidance. It actually helps them anyway. Uh, I found myself, I find myself learning things. In fact, I was, I teach my kids things that I learn uh, this morning, I was teaching them about something I learned from Lynn Stone. Mm -hmm. I was watching, Lynn is doing a, a thing right now where she's replaying some of her favorite videos of the past 10 years. And she posted one about the triangle game, which uh, we want to try out where there's a different activity for each point of the triangle. And she was talking about a long and a short vowel and how a short vowel can be measured as a short amount of a sound. And a long vowel is measured as a long amount of a sound. And no one has ever explained that to me before. And so I explained that to my class and they were like, oh yeah, that makes sense. If I make a short vowel sound, it's a short amount of time and a long is a long amount of time. But no one ever taught me that that was what the meaning was. And so I sort of was explaining to them that like their journey was starting at this point and it's going to go down this nice road where they're going to pick up all these things. And my journey kind of goes down this road and then makes a wrong turn. And then I had to come back down the road and then make a different turn and relearn all of these things that I didn't know. Uh, for another example would be uh, syllable types. No one ever taught me syllable types and I just learned them within the past three years. Mm -hmm. And my some of my kindergartners can tell you about syllable types now. Uh, we, we did minus in math class and they could tell you that one was open and one was closed. That's, that's absolutely um, incredible to think about the knowledge you have gained from sort of learning about how a proficient reader actually reads. Which brings me to my next question is, say the way we learn how to read, right? All of those processes happen in the brain. Are they, uh, do different brains work differently or does the brain work in a similar way? And if so- From what they're learning and, Science has come a long way. And I mean, we can even watch, they've done studies where they can look at what the brain does when you're reading. And they even have like, you know, kid-friendly versions of that where you can read words and different parts of the brain light up. Different words have, even multi-meaning words have different places in the brain where they are associated. Uh, we've we've watched those videos with the five-year-olds so they can take ownership of that learning so they can understand. I mean, we could argue about it, but I mean, there's not really two different ways to think about it. Now, some kids are going to really need a lot of extra help, but our brains are wired for speech. Yeah. Every brain has to be taught to read. And really, 
we have to learn the sounds. Mm -hmm. We have to learn the sounds and every word that we read has to be orthographically mapped. That's how it works. It's fast or it's slow. You might have to teach your brain how to do it before it goes into your lexicon, but that's how it's done. Um, and Jen, what do you mean by orthographically mapped? So when you're looking at a word, your brain has to identify the letters and match them to sounds. And then as you're reading it, all of that has to happen. And when I explain it to my kindergartners, I have to say them, it's, it's like your brain has a checklist. And when you look at it, your brain has to say, oh, okay, so this is, this is a word and it has a Y, an O, and a U. And then your brain's going to have to start. For, for little kids, it's, okay, so what letter is this? It's a Y. Okay, so what sounds can, can this letter spell? So it has to go through and pick all of that out. So for them, I tell them their job is to, they need to practice their automaticity. It has to be quick. Because you don't want to have to spend time racking through your brain finding all that you want to be like okay so my letter is y my sounds are and i want to have that ready mm -hmm. so then they find their sound and and you figure out it's e and then i'm going on to the next part then i'm looking at it and i'm thinking okay so it's not going to be a regular sound because e ah nope when i see these together in this group i know they make this sound I've learned this, my brain has practiced this. So when we're looking at our checklist, we're thinking like, I need it to be as short as possible. The longer your checklist is, the longer it's gonna take you to read the word and then you get tired because you've thought so much about it. So when you're orthographically mapping, the goal is to have a very short checklist. So you're looking at the word and reading it quickly and automatically. So when they're looking at a word like you, they wanna be looking at you, ooh and have it blended quickly. And if you can read it right away, then it's a sight word. Otherwise, it's just a word of high frequency, a word you see often. Beautiful. And you've, you've brought such a good point or highlighted such a good point, which is our brains sort of, you, they, they need to be taught to read these, read the code, which is the manual work of it, to then when, once the brain knows how to do it and with the correct number of repetitions and knowledge behind it, then it starts to become more automatic. So it's sort of depending on the level of difficulty, kids tend to move from manual to automatic. They can move quite quickly. Yes, yes. And do you and find that yeah. happens in kindergarten sometimes? Yeah. Uh, and and I know that sometimes when we talk about syllables or um, some of the things that the, some of the kids that's over their heads and it's just exposure for them. Yeah. Um, certainly we're not looking for mastery of some of those concepts. And some of them are graduate level scientific discussions, but it's fascinating. And it also lets them know that the, their brain is so amazing. They're amazing. And what they're doing is so amazing. But there's always a couple of kids that every year that really latch on to the information and they kind of start teaching their own lessons within the class. And especially with our sound wall too, they can start matching like, oh, I know that my mouth is making this movement. So it's going to match up with this other word we learned. And I have kids that can um, lead discussions on it. And I always make sure that I try to incorporate them into the lessons that we're doing. That's beautiful. Um, Jen, we might move on to the second link because I have quite a large. Okay. <laughs> Let me. Okay. So Jen, the other question I had was in the work you're doing right now with um the kindergartners. Can you take us through elements of your explicit teaching? What what parts are you teaching explicitly in terms of teaching them how to read and then 
how are you creating a language rich environment for them? So for the books that they're unable to read, but the knowledge they need to access, how are you sort of, yeah, doing both of it together, if that makes sense? It's such a great question because I know that a lot of us struggle with that because there's so much to do and then not enough time to get it all done. Yeah. So at my school, uh, we're really fortunate because as I mentioned, we have a lot of great training and a lot of key components and we're working our way through the letters modules, which I know a lot of people are familiar with. We have done the first three modules of them. And uh, we also have access to a lot of trainings through Patton as well. They do a lot of different book studies too that can enhance some of the things that, that we're able to do. And so my district has certain things that are um, non-negotiables when it comes to English language arts instruction. Uh, the first one is phonemic awareness. Uh, we are required to have a phonemic awareness block in our lesson plan. And it has to be um, using Hegarty because that's what's been identified by my district. Um, and it does match up with our state standards as well. Um, and it needs to be, uh, Hegarty needs to be like around 15 minutes. If you're going over that, it's, it's not effective. It's just overkill, I guess you would say. Yeah. And then we also have, uh, we use McGraw-Hill's Wonders, the 2020 edition. And so we have a phonics supplement for that also. It's called ECRI. Yeah. Enhanced Core Reading Instruction. And um, if you're not familiar with it, it is uh, an incredible enhancement. It works well with whichever program that you have. They have several programs that work with it, but it takes everything that is in what you're already doing and it just kind of spirals it all together. It, it's sort of like icing on a cake, if you will, like the wonders Wonders has so many um, great components to it that match up with science of reading knowledge, uh, what we know about the research, the, the comprehension, the vocabulary, all of those parts of the fluency. Wonders has exceptional, exceptional decodable readers. Their decodable readers, they match all the words, all the sounds. Um, I, I don't know how they do it, to be honest. Uh, when we first upgraded our our program, it had been a while. I'm not gonna even say how long because you'll probably laugh. But um, when we got them, I couldn't believe how many stories they wrote with the limited amount of sounds kindergartners know, or you know, using the word the, or you know, five high frequency words and six sounds. It's incredible. But five or six stories a week um, that go with them. It's, and, and people will tell you the best decodable books match your scope and sequence. Yeah. Well, I have too many books that match my weeks from my series. Like, it's unheard of. It's hard to say I need to supplement them because I have so many to pick from just from the publisher. So they've done a really great job with that. But we did know we'd need to supplement the phonics mm. because um, looking at where our students were, the, you know, when a publisher is going to publish different things, they, they're looking at big picture and our kids needed more than the phonics that was in the program. And sometimes that happens. Uh, research is moving quickly right now. In terms of people accessing it, we all know that science of reading research really isn't new. Uh, it's been around for at least 20 some years, but, um, I, and I, I really think the pandemic has a big part of this it's people started networking so quickly like I am planning this this virtual instruction and I have no idea what I'm doing and then like 4,000 other people are like I'm trying to do that too let's work together and uh, we saw people sharing things quickly these groups started um, expanding so quickly and at that point and for me this was another key point in my journey was so if I'm going to relearn how to teach 
math virtually. I'm going to relearn how to teach reading virtually. And even I can recall sitting uh, in a small group and teaching a reading lesson and thinking like, this is, this is awful. Like I, I need to do this differently. I thought if I'm going to relearn something, I might as well learn it a better way altogether. If we're going to throw everything out the window, I might as well do it a research-based way. So that's what, that's what I've done. And so for ECRI, ECRI is very structured for us. So for me, uh, my Hegarty lesson, I do that quickly. We do uh, a letter name and sound chant sort of thing where they say the letter's name, they make the sounds. Uh, we're very particular about the letter sounds and how they're produced. We actually um, have viewed the Hegarty videos. They're on YouTube that with the sounds and some of the kids try to uh, make themselves sound just like Mrs. Botari because she makes her sounds so perfectly. And so they have made it a challenge and they get really excited if there's come out the same way. So uh, we use that resource. And then when we do our ECRI, it, it's just set up so nicely. So we'll do a high frequency word where we read and spell. And then we also read a whole bunch of um, words where it's about 16 words, but some of the words are from recent weeks and then they'll spiral way back and review our other words as well. And then we also review all of the sounds, their spellings, um, their cues that we have. And we also review letter names, letter sounds again. And these are very, very quick. Uh, one of my colleagues created some PowerPoints that will go with them. Uh, if you're not familiar with ECRI, when we returned from shutdown in 2020, in the in the fall, we came in. Uh, I came into my classroom, uh, which used to be tables. Uh, we had all these desks, which we'd never taught with before in my whole career. And there is a binder about this big on my desk, and I was like, "So that's a tree, and it's gonna just stay over there." because I can't process all of these things at once. And it was really overwhelming. So my colleague, um, she came up with some PowerPoints and my other colleague as well, they made these um, week at a glance forms that show all the skills and words that you need to sound out for each day and each week. And it takes about 30 minutes to get through the whole program for the day. It also has, um, continuous blending for kindergarten. And then it uses the decodable text for wonders as well. And I think I have one. Let's see if I have one right here. So we did one today. So we'll take the decodable page from wonders and then we'll continuously blend whatever the words are and read the story. Today's was a shorter piece. So there, there weren't a lot of comprehension questions to ask. Uh, we built some background knowledge by talking about things that can hop. And I said, if there wasn't a picture, what other things can hop? And they were all like, oh, kangaroos can hop. Yeah. And so I changed it. It says Tom can hop. So I said, well, can means are able to. And I said, what if it said must hop? Can you sound that out? What does must mean? Uh, it means you have to do it all the time. And then they wanted to put things in there like um, a dog can hop. And I was like, well, does it have to hop or would that be a choice? It's like if a kangaroo, does a kangaroo, like, does it walk around sometimes? Or like, is it hopping always when it's moving, but different speeds? So we went through all of that. Yesterday's piece was a much longer decodable about a ham that was stolen yeah and it, the dad made dinner and then the dog stole the ham out of the pan so the kids there was a whole bunch of questions we could ask about that yeah. not always but every once in a while you can also include some comprehension with the decodable too so uh, wonders offers us a lot of the pieces there's a great explicit vocabulary routine where there's a picture and then there's a word. It has a student-friendly definition. It has questions and activities that you ask about the word. And I love that they have this, it's called a 
a listening story where you put the listening story on and it has just four pictures mm -hmm. and then it talks them through the story and the vocabulary words are in that story so it's not a read aloud per se like where I'm flipping pages in the book but it has them use their imagination based on just one picture but then they're also listening for the vocabulary words as well and then I hang them up on my board over on the side with sentences that my one of my other colleagues that teaches kindergarten at our other school she said oh I have the kids make a sentence with the word in it so we write the kids sentences up on the board then that reminds me to use them like oh tradition uh one of our stories was about different cultures and people in your community and so we did tradition and cultures and um different things that go on um, people in your community and the one story is about shoes that you wear in a community uh, for helpers and so then I could look over there and be like oh yeah look there's a vocabulary word again we used it in a sentence so they have all of those and then there's also weekly read-alouds that would be great for and they're they have a really nice dialogic routine in there which when I did the top 10 tools I learned about how to do that and I had to kind of dive really deep into our series and it was at the end of our first year using it so it would be like okay this is what tool we're doing and here's your assignment and I had to like go in and like really pull all the pieces apart um and I learned a lot about it but the the read-alouds have rereads and then you have to ask different questions and so we have all of that at our fingertips for us. So we are fortunate in those aspects. That's beautiful. So you've covered phonemic awareness, phonics, comprehension, vocabulary, and you mentioned fluency is within those McGraw-Hills wonders. Is that a... Yeah, the, our fluency... So in kindergarten, we spend a lot of time just decoding. Yeah. And then continuously blending. And when I was learning more about ECRI, my one of my friends works for ECRI and Dibbles, which were mm -hmm. a Dibbles school as well. Um, and they're just quick one minute assessments that mm -hmm. can help identify kids who have needs um, that they could be dyslexic or have an issue with reading. And it doesn't take a lot of time. And, and I recently also learned that no assessment's free. It could be free of cost, but it's always going to cost you instructional time. Yeah. And so you want to be careful what assessments you're picking because uh, is it going to have some sort of progress monitoring? Mm -hmm. Because if you're just doing it once or twice or three times a year, but not able to monitor how much benefit are you getting as well as how much time is it taking away from your instruction yeah. because the teacher needs to be instructing. And then also if you have to make stuff to continue to monitor, like then that's time again. Uh, but if kids aren't able to continuously blend or look at a nonsense word, which additionally I learned that a nonsense word is just a closed syllable. And I was like, wow, somebody should have taught me that as well. All this time I had kids trying to turn nonsense words into real words. And then I, so now when I'm teaching different rhyming words and they come up with a nonsense word, we'll be like, is that, is that a real word or could it be part of another word? And then they get it. It was like mind blowing for me. Isn't it so many, yeah, sort of those mind-blowing moments and life drop moments. Or life so drop amazing. Moments. I, I had a student that tried to make all of the nonsense words long vowels. Oh, yeah, right. And then, so I said to them, I said, honey, it's a, it's a closed syllable. And he was like, oh, oh, could do all of them. Yeah. How how amazing um and the other question I had for you Jen is so we've talked about the reading component and aligning it with the writing instruction to further embed 
the reading knowledge into their brain and the technicalities what's your system like with writing writing is the hot discussion everywhere I think I think everyone struggles with it uh it's even in our standards it's it's always Okay, so step one is we're going to learn these letters, we're going to learn these sounds, and then we're going to do some CVC words, and then you're going to write an opinion piece of several sentences, and then we're going to write paragraphs. And then you're like, so like, where, where's step two? Like step one, step three, step four, step 47, but there's no middle guidance. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about that this year uh on my team at my school uh we had a meeting with learning without tears trying to figure out like what are we missing Mm -hmm. and i know that teachers across america struggle with this um it seems like maybe across the world struggle with this and i know that from kindergarten to like our fifth grade teachers will say like our kids can't write Mm -hmm. and I really think it's the same issue though with reading. You know, we were we were teaching them to read, but read. They were they were just looking at a picture and telling what they saw. And and I know that I remember we would have kids and and I would see them in my class and I would be like, "Well, they're an average reader per se." And I would see them a couple years later and I would be like, how are they in the reading support group? They were a reader. And in my journey, I was like, oh, it's because I didn't teach them to read. Mm-hmm. I taught them how to be a struggling reader. I didn't teach them phonics skills or strategies, what to do when they came to, well, were those too difficult? Mm-hmm. And last year, all of my kids didn't get to be on level, but... Mm-hmm the end of the year, they all had skills that they could apply when they got to words they didn't know. And we always say, they they would look at something and be like, oh, it's, it's frog. It's, I saw it in the picture. I'm like, well, that was a good guess, but you're not here to be guessers. And they're like, we know you want us to be readers, not (laughs) guessers. They all know that like in the first week of school, they all know that. And so I think the same thing is true with writing. It's that we were teaching it the same way. We had these, these word walls and, and we had our training on sound walls. And I went to the training and I was like, let's take my word wall down. I've, I've had that forever where I've always used that. And I'll have both then if we have to have a sound wall. So, you know, I come down and to my room and I start looking at it. And then I was like, I'm throwing this word wall in the garbage. Like this is garbage. And I tell my kids every year, I'm like, I had the under the letter T and they were like, they'll be, why would you do that? How could we find it then? Like yeah. they get it. Cause they're on step one of their journey and not having to climb down to go back up. And that's the same with writing. It's that we're trying to make them write multiple sentences before they even can write one. So a lot of what I've been doing this year is, you know, giving them words they can write because we do a lot of encoding. We do, um, so as I'm OG trained. And so we do some, now you can't do the individualized skills that they have in the program with 25 kids. Cause that's how many I have in my class. And I, I can't keep track of all that at once. So, uh, we take some other routines where I say it, they say it back yeah. and then we tap it. And then we, sorry, we tap it with our fingers like this, and then they have to spell it after that. So, and we have a, an ice cream cone that has scoops that have all the steps on it. And then they have one that they took home with them too, because part of being a kindergarten teacher is teaching the parents and not that they don't know, but a lot of the parents are in my generation or, um, and many of them are younger than me now, Mm. they want to learn too. And if I tell them what I'm doing, they'll do it. They'll almost all of them will do it, or they will try their best. 
And some of them weren't taught to read either. And those are the most heartbreaking conversations that you have with parents. Mm -hmm. uh, that They'll say like, I was that student that was never taught to read effectively. I am in that mm -hmm. percentage and school failed me and I can't let this happen to my child. And, you know, that's the part where you feel like you have to help everyone. And, and that's another lesson from the pandemic too, where the teacher is not just helping the child. The community helps the community and we all have to work together to make better policies and better commitments to our children because they all deserve to read every single one of them. And, you know, we can say, well, you know, most of them will read, except do you want it to be your child that, that doesn't read? Because yeah. it's going to be someone's child that doesn't read. And it's going to be a child in your community that doesn't read. And how many things in your life mm -hmm. every day do you need to read? driving a car, passing a driver's test, getting a job. And how many kids do we put into that track by just not teaching them effectively? And it's not personal. And I, I had a, I told some of my parents at my conferences this year, I was doing um, progress monitoring. And I said, I noticed that my, my, my teaching wasn't working because the kids weren't growing. And that's not, that's not your child. That was me. I needed to change what I was doing and I did. And then notice how your child grew and it happened to a bunch of kids. Mm -hmm. So I knew that what I was doing wasn't working and it's something I had been doing and worked before. And I switched it and kids grew like 10 sounds in 10 days, like mm -hmm. a large group of them. But I said to all of them, it's not your child. It was, it's a reflection of what I'm doing. Nothing's wrong with their child nothing's wrong with your child. It's, we need to teach them, but that's the same with writing. Like we start with words, mm -hmm. then we work with sounds and then we try to write really good one sentences and we get that down really, really good. Mm -hmm. And then we build on it. But if we don't do that, then they're never going to be able to be successful. But the other side of that too is the cognitive load of writing, if we don't have automaticity, it adds steps to it because mm -hmm. the writing part is hard. If you can't remember your letter names and sounds, you're not going to be able to, how to, to write them because that's extra steps on your list. Mm -hmm. And if, if you don't know how to do those things, you're not going to be able to write. But also they said a lot of, a lot of kids don't even think in full sentences. So how can you write a sentence if you only think in one word or fragments? And so a lot of times when you ask questions, work on talking in a full sentence back to your child or with your group. Uh, what is the weather today? Sunny. Yeah. The weather is sunny. Let's yeah. talk like a writer. Even if you're not spelling it, we try to talk like that. And I'll say, talk like a writer so that they're used to putting words together to make a sentence. Absolutely. Thank you, Jen, for, yeah, um, explaining that clearly in terms of the complexities of writing at a level of um, five to six-year-olds and then how, yeah, possibly they could be compounded. They are compounded as they grow older. And without these steps, it's it's hard to sort of go, there is a lot happening, but we need we also need to be able to pinpoint areas. And all of a sudden they're like, here's a hamburger. Write sentences on all the pieces of your hamburger. And they're like, wow. sunny, it's sunny, you yeah. know? So that's exactly right. Um, and and the whole notion of is it a task that is being assigned to them, or are we explicitly teaching them tools to equip them for any task in writing right right um my other question is so earlier in the conversation you mentioned that you're in the midst of testing for your mid-year um testing the students and you said it, it was overwhelmingly joyful um 
witnessing their progress, what does their progress look like at the moment in the different elements that you've mentioned? So things are so different and all all over the place. Uh, some, and you've always had kids that don't go to preschool. And, and as I mentioned, uh, we don't even have uh, kindergarten as mandatory in our state. So uh, most kids do go to preschool and some kids come from a language rich environment and some don't. Um, it's really all over. And I, and I think a lot of teachers have similar experiences where, you know, some kids go to preschool, some don't, some schools obviously are going to have kids that don't more kids that don't or more kids that don't have a language rich environment or, um, a large, uh, MLLs population at their school. And so when you have all of these different students coming in, and that's the challenge of kindergarten is that everyone comes in on the first day and some have never left home before. Like they've always been with, with someone they're related to. And then you have kids who have, you know, gone to a daycare since, you know, the moment their parent had to return to work and everything from one end to the other in between. And, and they all come to your classroom and at that point, you know, as soon as you come to the school, then it's my job to get them all to learn. Um, do I want them all to read? Yes. Do I want them all to be able to do math? Of course. But first, I want them to feel safe and welcome and like they're part of the school and that, you know, we care about them and that they're safe. Yeah. So like, that's the beginning of the year for us is, you know, making sure that all the kids feel like they belong in our classrooms because you can't teach kids to love school. It's, it's hard to get them to do that. Mm -hmm. And if you're just leaving your parents for the first time, it can be a real struggle for some of those kids. Uh, and the pandemic has compounded that. So that's always been kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And then when you add in the pandemic, uh, each year has been a little different since then. Uh, you know, we've had kids who have been with their parents all the time that typically wouldn't be, mm -hmm. or, um, you know, we've lost loved ones or we've had different people that have had completely different experiences than you would ever normally, normally expect. Um, it's just made things so different than, than any other time in any of our lives. And so some kids um, didn't have early intervention that normally you would expect because they, they would have gone to a preschool. Uh, one of our local preschools shut down unrelated to anything else. Uh, so preschools failed faster and you take all of those things into consideration and then you start at the beginning of the year and you're like this, you know, this one's never lined up before. And this one's never had a, pen a held pencil before. And this one can read. And this one, you know, is over here. And this one's there. And this one's crying. And you try to just, you know, find each one and, and take care of them. And then you get to now when you come back from, we just came back from a short break. Um, ours are, ours are a little different than, um, other places, um, in Western Pennsylvania, we do shorter breaks mm -hmm. on the East coast. They do longer breaks in between, but so we're just reacclimating ourselves to being like in the group and you start calling them over one by one, you know, real quick, asking them quick things. So I started assessing sounds and letters and you get to see how the explicit instruction works. And for me, and I don't, I don't know how everyone else's goes, but for me, um, sometimes you're like, you know, are they, are they participating? Are they just sitting there going through the motions and moving their lips? But you used to have kids who at mid-year, they would know no sounds or no letters because you would just do like letter of the week and here's your picture and your craft and, you know, take it home. We're going to sing the ABCs and this is so much fun. And, 
but learning is fun if if you make it fun which we try to do every day now is every day like a circus and a show and dancing and singing no but it's not boring unless I'm boring and some days I'm not like you know tons of fun but we still try to be fun and I can see now like a couple kids need to work on some things but there's not kids who are just not getting nothing like everybody is making progress and like I said not everyone's starting with a solid base Mm -hmm. some kids have that and can build up but some kids have to build the base with me and they're all building and it's really just incredible to know that all the changes in hard work and trainings and like every kid and they just sit there and their eyes get big and they just soak it all in and it's so rewarding yeah oh that's beautiful um Jen thank you so much I'm just having a look at the time um but before we do wrap up is there anything that you would like for anybody listening to this conversation be it an educator or not um to take away from what you've said and covered well I think first you are your child's best advocate would be my first thing so if you have a question uh, always reach out to your child's teacher because I am also a big believer in the chain of command so you want to start with each step and don't be afraid to ask a question. Uh, I always welcome a question from a parent. Um, we're here to help. We want your child to be successful. So if you have a question or you feel like you're not sure what the teacher's doing, like, okay, so I didn't learn to read like this and I'm not sure why my child's going around the house tapping their fingers all the time. It's okay to just ask. Uh, I always tell my parents, there's no, there's no silly questions. If you need to know, just ask and I will answer it for you. And I try to share as much as possible with them, short video clips, you know, whatever I think could be helpful. And I also, for educators too, it's, it's okay to learn something new. It's okay to feel like, don't think I've been doing this the correct way or I need to learn something new I learn something new all the time now and I think back to earlier in my career and you know I did new things I don't I try not to do the same things every year uh, depending on which kids I have or which projects or that kind of thing but I, I learn new things every day now and there is an amazing community which is how we found each other There's an amazing community um, on social media and social media can be a very dark and scary and unwelcoming place uh, if you get stuck in the wrong algorithm, but it is possible to get out of the algorithms as well. But there are so many amazing people out on social media. There's so many groups. Uh, Facebook's great for groups where you can really narrow down um, the information that you're getting, like you don't get lost. Then if you want to learn about science of reading, there's groups for that. If you want to learn about science of math, there's groups for that. And science of math definitely could use some more discussion. Uh, They're talking about that being about 10 years behind science of reading. So um, if people are looking to learn more about math, there's definitely room for growth in that aspect as well. But that's, Facebook's a good place to go for those. And then if you're looking on Instagram and TikTok has really great short videos to help you learn about different ways to give, I mean, quick instruction. You can hop on one of those platforms and find a great idea that you can do tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just saying about the triangle game. I watched that last night and I could talk about it in my class today. So uh, I find these short little things um, and I've made some lifelong friends uh, on social media. And if you ever feel like you're alone at your school, sometimes it's hard to get a lot of buy-in. And 
a lot of it is uh, people sometimes get scared of change. And I personally, I am not big on change. You can ask people that know me personally. Um, I am one of the most routine people you could meet and change can be terrifying. There are people online that will be your staff. They can be your, your people to get you through those hard days. And if you're having a hard time um, getting other people to buy in, uh, you may not be able to convince them. And it's really, it's not your job to get everybody to do it the right way. Sometimes you just have to do it the way you know is right. And it's not your way anyway, it's the research. So you can always find someone else that will help you get through the hard days. There's lots of people out there. You can always send me a message. I've, I've got social media as well. So uh, you can find me under my same name that we discussed at the beginning. Yes, beautiful. Thank you so much, Jen, for taking the time at, um, and sharing your life chapter with us. I'll put your um, social media links, Embrace the SOR Journey, um, and a couple of others that we discussed during this session. And for everybody else that's going to be listening to this conversation, um, either on the Human Chapters YouTube channel or Human Chapters podcast, please feel free to share it with anyone else that may connect. And thank you in advance. All right, take care.